This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Senior Associate of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mexican, but are we ready? I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina. And that's what happened. role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. In the first nine months of 2019, a million migrants have shown up on the U.S. southern border. That's a statistic. But what is the story or the stories behind those people? Welcome to 35 West. I'm your host, Richard Miles. My guest today is Daniel Gonzalez, who writes about immigration for the Arizona Republic and the USA Today Network. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you for having me. So, Daniel, you've been with the Arizona Republic now for about 20 years, but in the news business for about 30. So how did you originally get interested in immigration and and get on that beat? Well, before I came to Arizona, I was working in Syracuse, New York, and that's where I really kind of developed an interest in writing more about Latino issues. Both of my parents are Latina. My mom's Mexican-American, and my dad's a Cuban immigrant. And um, I had gone to Mexico in the 90s to study Spanish. When I came back, I really started kind of developing kind of a subbeat in Syracuse, writing about Latino issues. And that was a period in time in the United States where the Latino population was really starting to grow. And I think now we kind of take for granted you know, the size of the Latino population, but that was really when we were starting to see significant increases in the Latino population. And I recognized that as something that would be good for my career and something that I was interested in. So in the end of 1999 is when I moved to Phoenix. That was a period in time when there was just a tremendous influx of Mexican immigrants crossing the border illegally from Mexico into the United States, and a couple big things were happening at the time. The uh, Mexican peso had collapsed the late 1990s. The United States economy was experiencing one of the biggest booms in history. So we had these two push-pull factors. People were being kind of pushed out of Mexico. They had a very surplus of workers, and we had a surplus of jobs. And so there was a lot of people moving from Mexico seeking work in the United States. And traditionally, the main migration routes had been through El Paso, Texas, and the San Diego area of California. But there was a big increase in enforcement in the 1990s under Bill Clinton in those two corridors, and that had the effect of funneling illegal immigration through Arizona, which was at that time not very fortified. And the belief was that people wouldn't cross through Arizona because it was just too remote, too dangerous, too desolate, too hot. And all all those assumptions turned out to be wrong. So when I came here in 1990, that's what was happening. We were seeing the beginnings of just a tremendous influx of migrants from Mexico into Arizona. And when I came to work here, I started off as the Latino affairs reporter. There were some other reporters here who kind of pioneered the immigration beat, who recognized that that was needed to be covered on its own. At the time, there was very few immigration reporters dedicated solely to immigration in the United States. And those reporters kind of moved on and created an opportunity. And so in 2003, I took over the immigration beat full time, and I've been covering it ever since. So, Dan, you you make a very interesting point uh, early on. I mean, just the the dynamic and nature of the immigration that we've seen has really changed 
significantly almost every decade. And I, I had to smile when I heard you, you know, you're raised in New York to Mexican-American mother. I, I was raised in Connecticut and my mother was Mexican. And, you know, those days when she came in the 60s was a very, very different time. Uh, I, I don't know when you, when your mother immigrated, but to the point, it's just, it's not the same thing when we talk about migration from Mexico, it depends on the decade uh, quite a bit. Yeah. Let's set the stage here. I'm going to I'm going to talk uh, about some statistics and sort of have you react to them. And in particular, something very interesting that you and USA Today did over this last summer, and that is, as you mentioned, the numbers. And certainly, the numbers in the late '90s and early 2000s were massive in terms of illegal migration. But then, what we saw essentially was a decline in that by about. 2007, 2008, with steadily declining numbers. In the last few years, and particularly this year, uh, fiscal year 2019, we've seen a huge surge in apprehensions on the southwest border. And so according to you know a lot of data from the, the Customs and Border Protection Service, every month this fiscal year, we've seen big, big increases in detentions on the southwest border. In particular, in May, an enormous spike where you know, almost 145,000 people detained on the southwest border compared with the year previous was around just over 50,000. And then every month since then, although it hasn't been as high as May, has been quite significant. What a lot of people pointed out, and I would just sort of like your reaction to as well, is is what we're seeing now is most of those huge numbers or the increases are coming from um, Central American countries, uh, three countries in particular, you know, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, and then of those, we're seeing a lot of families traveling together, some unaccompanied minors and and fair still number of single people, but huge numbers of Central American families. So th- this has been well known to people, experts like you, for, for quite a while. And so your paper, USA Today Network, put together a very interesting team or a look at, at one week, right, in the border Uh, this last year. Why don't you tell us about that project? You know, what was the concept behind it? What was the motivation? And then what, tell us some of your findings. Sure. Just a little background. So the USA Today Network, which the Arizona Republic is part of, is a network of over 100 newspapers in the the country, all part of the Gannett Corporation. And the flagship paper, obviously, is USA Today. The network actually has quite a few newspapers along the border. Um, they cover immigration in their respective regions, like the El Paso Times, and then here the Arizona Republic, and then um, Palm Springs, the paper in Palm Springs. Those are all part of the USA Today network. And there's different kind of phenomenons happening in different parts of the border, and we've all been kind of covering this issue from our respective geographic areas. But we collaborate on big stories like this. We collaborated in 2017, I think it was, on a project called The Wall, where we tried to look at what would be the unintended consequences of building a wall along the entire U.S.-Mexico border, which is what the president campaigned on. After that project came out we is when we really started seeing this big spike in Central, especially Central American families, Central Americans in general, but especially Central American families. So these various newspapers, including USA Today, we had been writing about this, you know, individual stories from our respective geographic um, regions. But we we meet periodically every, every two weeks or so to kind of look at what kinds of stories we can work on, tackle as a team. And this seemed like just the perfect perfect story to tackle and, you know, take that approach. 
And originally, kind of what the idea was, we were seeing there was this large number of families coming, especially in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. That's where the vast majority of Central Americans cross over into the United States. But we're also seeing significant increases in families crossing in the Yuma sector here on the border of Arizona and California, also in the Tucson sector and in the El Paso sector. All those areas were seeing just really tremendous spikes in migrants. And what was startling about that was that these are areas that back in the early 2000s had also been very significant corridors, but some of those areas had dropped off to you know relatively few people crossing except for the Rio Grande Valley. So one of the ideas that we initially had was that we were noticing that you know when, when the families would come across because of various laws and court rulings and capacity with detention, the Border Patrol and ICE couldn't hold them very long. So they started... Almost a year ago at this time, in 2018, the Border Patrol and ICE started releasing very large numbers of migrant families, mostly because of capacity issues, but also because of what's known as the Flora Settlement um, that prevents the government from holding migrant families from Central America for more than about three weeks. When these families were being released into these communities along the border, and a lot of times these communities were not prepared for them, so they were they were being the border patrol was being overwhelmed, and these communities were being overwhelmed when the families were being released. And when I say release, what what literally happened is a family would would cross, say for example, in Yuma sector, they would literally walk across the border and just stand there, maybe a few yards, twenty, thirty yards inside the border, and just stand there and wait for the border patrol to come and pick them up. The Border Patrol would apprehend them. They would take them to a processing facility near the border. They would be held there for one or two days. Their fingerprints would be taken. Um, they'd be put into the system. Then questions about you know, asylum would be asked. And then the families would be driven to either a bus station, like Greyhound bus station, or to some location, some kind of humanitarian shelter, like uh, here in Phoenix, it was um, churches, but in other parts, it was like Salvation Army and that kind of thing. And they would just, the bus would roll up and the, and the families would, would walk out of the bus and uh, they would be allowed to continue on to their final destination. But they'd be kind of stuck there trying to figure out how they were going to get from these border cities to their final destination, which almost always was away from the border. Most of these families were heading to the interior of the United States, places like Florida, and Washington, D.C. area, um, New York, Chicago, um, California, places where there are already large concentrations of Central Americans where they would go and you know live with, with reunite with family members. That's kind of how we came up with the ideas. We thought, you know, how can we describe what's happening at the border and in Central America and in Mexico as migrants make their way from, you know, their origination points through Mexico to the U.S. border and to their final destination. So we had been kind of telling these stories, as had many other newspapers around the country, kind of in a piecemeal fashion. And, you know, one of our editors came up with the ideas as we were trying to decide how we could tackle this issue in a large-scale format that could really have a really good grasp of the overview of what was happening. So that's what we came up with, um, this idea where we would deploy about 20 to 30 journalists and photographers and videographers 
all the way from Central America in Mexico, along the entire U.S.-Mexico border, and in Washington, D.C., and capture the individual stories of this migration taking place from Central America through through Mexico to the border. And then when families were released at these border communities, reporters would actually get on the bus or get on an airplane and accompany these families to their final destinations. And we would do this all in one single week, so we'd have kind of capture an hour-by-hour, day-by-day moment in time of this migration phenomenon that was happening. You know, what I find very interesting about the piece, Daniel, which I, I think was excellent, is the way that you interweave these different stories in, in sort of both time and place, right? They're, they're not all one border crossing. They're not all take place in uh, Guatemala and then go sequentially. It's sort of like, as you said, a snapshot of, of day by day. Tell us about your personal interviews. You know, what, what sector or where were you during this week? And then what are some of the stories that, uh, or interviews that jumped out at you during that week? So kind of logistically, the way we this kind of came together is that we would have reporters at all these different kind of locations that we figured out, well, what would be the main locations where we want to have reporters? We knew we wanted to have reporters at various points along the actual border. We wanted to have reporters in communities where migrants were being released. We wanted to have reporters inside the uh, immigration court where migrants were showing up for their um, hearings. We wanted to have reporters in Washington, D.C., in in the halls of power where decisions about this um, phenomenon were taking place. And we wanted to have reporters in Mexico who could intercept or meet with migrants as they're traveling through the country. And then we also wanted to have reporters in Central America who could who could describe, you know, what, why were people leaving. And, um, so that was my assignment. My assignment was to travel to southern Mexico, the state of Chiapas, which borders Guatemala, the city of Tapachula, which is about 20 miles from the border of Guatemala, is where I started. Then I traveled across the border there by, on, by foot and uh, met up with a someone I know who's Guatemalan, and uh, he drove me to the western highlands of Guatemala, which is a, a region that borders Mexico and is considered the, the poorest region of Guatemala. It's also 100% of the people who live there are, are indigenous uh, Mayan people. So that was my assignment, was to spend a few days at the border, southern border of Mexico. And the reason that we wanted to do that is because at that particular week happened to be the very beginning of the um, crackdown that that Mexico was undertaking to prevent Central American migrants and migrants from other parts of the world trying to reach the United States to prevent them from traveling through Mexico to make it to the U.S. border. And that was a policy that was implemented by um, the president of Mexico under pressure from uh, the Trump administration who had threatened to put significant, place significant tariffs on Mexican exports into the United States. So that was why we wanted to start off in southern Mexico. And then I also went to this um, region in um, Guatemala to interview migrants who specifically were um, planning or considering making the trip to the United States. So some of the stories are when I was in at the border in Mexico, I met migrants, what was interesting there is that I had been in that same area just a few months earlier, and at that point, 
migrants were crossing from Central America into Tapachula. They would spend a few days there, and then they were continuing on their journey to the United States, either by car or by bus or by walking. I had covered the caravans the year before, so a lot of people were walking long distances until they could reach the um, freight trains and hop the freight trains and make it to the border. And what was different when I was there in June was that there was a huge bottleneck. There was the, um, the Mexican government had deployed um, a lot of federal troops. They were conducting checkpoints along the major highways. They had brought in federal police to augment the um, immigration authorities. And anybody who tried getting past Tapachula to continue through Mexico risked being intercepted and then taken to a detention facility where they would face deportation back to Central America. So at that point in June, migrants were not moving. And I met people who were living in shelters, who had been there for weeks, and what they were trying to do was apply for transit permits to travel through Mexico, or they were trying to apply for um, asylum to stay in Mexico and work legally. And I um, also met migrants who had been kind of stuck there for even longer periods of time. But that that was the main thing, is that there was a lot of migrants, you know, walking around in the streets with kind of nothing to do, trying to figure out how they were going to survive. I met migrants inside these shelters that were stuck, and then I also went to the uh, federal detention facility where there was literally hundreds of migrants outside waiting for loved ones or friends who had been detained to see if they could, they were going to be released. It was very kind of beginnings of a very kind of chaotic um, situation there in southern Mexico. Then when I traveled over into Guatemala, two of the families that I interviewed were families who um, were considering making the trip to Mexico. One was a woman whose husband had already tried to come to the United States on his own. He had been uh, apprehended by the Border Patrol and was he was being detained in Texas. And she had three small children, and the way she survived is she had a small farm where she earned, it was like dollars per day from this farm, growing like potatoes and corn. And she had a a couple animals. I think she had like two cows and some chickens that she would raise and then slaughter each day and sell at her little store. And then with this store that she ran, which was actually stockpiled with, you know, like soda and water and, you know, all the basic kinds of things that you would buy at a convenience store, toothbrushes, toothpaste, uh, laundry detergent, stuff like that. It was all, all of her store was stocked with money that she had received from relatives in the United States that helped her kind of open up this little store so she could survive. But because her husband had been apprehended, they were hoping that he was able to get to Maryland, I think is where he was headed, get a job in the United States and be able to send money back to her to support her and her three kids because he had been apprehended. They had no more income, and so she was kind of running, raising her three young children and running this little farm and running this store all single-handedly, and she decided that it would be better if she brought her children with her across the border and try to, uh, you know, get a job herself in the United States. So that's what she was planning to do. And then the other guy I met there was a a guy who had been raising uh, poppy plants for the Mexican cartels. And originally he was a farmer growing potatoes and corn. And then the cartels came in and convinced a lot of people to grow poppy for them. And they would pay him, you know, three, four times as much as they would earn, you know, growing corn. 
about a year ago, the Mexican government military came in and eradicated millions of these poppy plants, and he was back to growing potatoes, and I think he grew up some wheat, some other small things on his small farm. He was basically thrust back into poverty, so he was considering taking one of his three boys, young boys, with him to the United States. And all of these people that I talked to in Central America had heard that if you brought your child across the border, that it was almost like a legal way of entering the United States. That was their kind of very simplistic understanding of what was happening at the border, that if you came, if you brought a child and crossed the border with this kid, you would be allowed into the United States and you'd be allowed to continue to your final destination and then you could get a job. And so that seemed like a pretty good deal to them if they could bring their kid to there and get a job. This this man that I interviewed, his idea was that he would pick one of the two older kids, get to the United States, work for as long as he could. And the other advantage he thought was, you know, his son would be able to get a, a much better education than if they stayed in Guatemala. And then he had heard about, you know, asylum, but he, he was definitely not someone who was fleeing direct violence or any kind of persecution. His main goal was to get to the United States and for economic reasons and get his family out of this extreme poverty that they were living in. And he had heard people talk about, you know, that asylum and that you might be able to get a work permit if you applied for asylum, but he really had just like a very, very primitive, simple concept of what that was all about. That's fascinating because a lot of people in Washington, certainly, or in the, the sort of think tank or policy community are constantly talking about what are the drivers of immigration. And of course, when you're talking about Central America, in particular, those countries of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, there are a lot of drivers, right? There's violence, there's poverty, there's instability, and so on. But one thing that's definitely changed in the last year is the, the vast increase, as you said, in families traveling with children. And it sounds like even though the understanding of our asylum policy is, is probably not that sophisticated, it's enough, right? Uh, I mean, it's enough to sort of take a risk, pack up the family, make a pretty dangerous trip through Mexico. Are there groups in those countries where the government themselves are trying to put out you know, sort of accurate description of what U.S. asylum policy is, or or what are they, where are they getting the information from? Is this word of mouth relatives in the U.S. or how are they making that decision? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's, it's actually a combination of, of factors. They get this information from television. They're getting it from social media, from Facebook posts, things like that. They're getting it from word of mouth, from neighbors and relatives who have made the trip and get to the border and cross over and turn themselves into the Border Patrol like they're instructed. And then they're released a few days later, and then they're able to get to their final destination. So like, wow, it, it actually, this what we heard was happening actually happened. And then they go and pass that information back to other relatives in Central America. And then a key place that they're getting this information is from smuggling organizations. Smuggling organizations will tell people, if you bring your child, you can get a permit, they call it permiso, to get into the United States. And if you ask for asylum, you'll be released and, um, you know, you show up for your court hearings and you can, you know, apply for, for a work permit. A lot of the information comes from actual criminal organizations. And in, in these towns that I was in, everybody knew the local kind of smuggler, the person who you would pay to help get you 
to the United States. And what the smugglers were telling people is, you know, they would charge people anywhere from five to ten to twelve thousand dollars, and that often included the cost of the child. And there were kind of different rates that they would charge. So the more expensive the rate, the more comfort and the more likelihood you could reach the border and get into the United States. For example, for a lower price, they would help guide you through Mexico where you would be hitchhiking rides or taking maybe part of the journey on bus rides, or you might be hopping on the train, but they would be helping get you to the border. For another higher price, you know, they might be able to get you on a car, get you uh, with some other people into a car and transport you to, to the border that way. And then for the maximum price, they would they were working with bus companies and uh, they would fill up an entire bus in Tapachula with migrants. And this higher price would not only get you bus transportation from the border to the United States border, but if you stop in hotels, and it would cover your food and would also cover, most importantly, money that the criminal organizations were paying the uh, Mexican authorities to wave you through, basically, the bribe to allow you to go through checkpoints, you know, uninhibitedly. So they're essentially travel agencies then, it sounds like. Yeah, that's very much what they did operate like. And what was interesting is that I actually was able to interview a, a person. He didn't identify himself, you know, as a smuggler, but it was pretty much known that's what he did in this community. Um, he never admitted that to me. You know, that was kind of when I was brought to his house, that was kind of the understanding of what he did. You know, I presented that question to him. It's often said that by the Trump administration that this phenomenon was is being organized by criminal organizations who are soliciting business and, and falsely telling people that this is the way to come to the United States and they're, they're letting people in. And there is some truth to that. But this smuggler, what he insisted was, we're not convincing or telling people to come to the United States. They already want to come. They're desperate. There a lot of people are fleeing violence or gang violence or persecution and extreme poverty, like some of the situations I described. And we're providing that service. We're we're helping them get to or he should the way he works is smugglers is helping them get to the United States. Um the peop it's the people who are the ones who want to go. We're just helping them get there. We're not forcing them to go is kind of how he put it. So it it's it was really to in my view was kind of a combination of both. They're giving some, you know, false information to migrants because it's a business for them, but the customers, you know, the migrants, their motivation for leaving is because of the conditions that they're fleeing. Right. Otherwise they wouldn't want they wouldn't want to be giving up like that man leaving his wife and his two young children behind for an uncertain amount of time. It could have, he, he thought it could be years before he'd ever see his wife or his two kids again. So you can imagine the kind of desperation it takes for someone to be willing to do that just for a chance to be able to earn money and send back home to support his wife and his kids. Let's shift our attention now from, you know, to north of the border and specifically on the political issue of illegal immigration in U.S. politics. And I think living in Arizona, you, you probably see that more clearly than than other folks. And, and of course, during the last presidential campaign, it was an enormous issue, was the issue that, that probably got Donald Trump elected. That The irony of which, of course, is that the numbers in fiscal year 15, 16 had dropped 
and they're certainly much lower than um, the early 2000s, late 1999. But nevertheless, it was undeniable. It was an explosive and remains an explosive political topic in the United States. From your, your perch in Arizona in a border state covering this issue for a living, do you detect a more nuanced understanding in border communities and border states? Is it better or worse, I guess, than the average American in terms of reactions to or accommodations to illegal immigration? Are there solutions there that the rest of the company, country needs to think about? Or w- w- what do you see? Well, yeah, I definitely think it's nuanced. And I think for the time that I've been in Arizona over the last 20 years, this has changed tremendously the attitudes towards migration here in Arizona. I mean, Arizona has a reputation of being a very hardline state, and that's because of the the many laws that were passed in the 2000s um, that were aimed at driving undocumented immigrants out of Arizona, culminating with the passage of SB 1070 in 2010. Even though at the time, we were experiencing at the time a tremendous construction boom, and that construction boom was being fueled in part by the availability of not just cheap labor, but labor from Mexico. That boom would not have been able to take place at that pace if it hadn't been the availability of workers that were coming across the border from Mexico. But the reaction was to those changes was very negative because the demographic changes that took place in the state were very rapid and a lot of people were, you know, uncomfortable with those changes. And I think those are the kinds of changes that the rest of the country has been going through, or many other parts of the country over the last 10 years that we went through in the early 2000s. But I definitely have seen a change in the way uh, migration is looked upon. It's still, it's still seen as a, as a major challenge. For example, we have not had a, another single law passed like SB 1070 in the last 10 years. A big reason for that is because of these changes of attitudes towards migrants, but also because of recognition of the role that they play in the economy. The pressure from businesses on political leaders in the state have prevented those law, more laws like that from going through. So, and in terms of, of like kind of solutions, I think people recognize that we tend to have spikes in illegal immigration when the United States economy is doing well. Illegal immigration, I, I kind of view it as this byproduct of a successful economy and a disconnect with immigration laws. And then the other big factor is the conditions in, in countries that are pushing people to leave. So in terms of solutions, I think people are starting to recognize at least that the solutions are improving conditions in the countries that are sending migrants. And that's what we've seen happen in Mexico over the last 20 years, where economic conditions have improved to the levels where there are fewer people wanting to migrate to the United States, and that's why those numbers have fallen. And also, there's, there are fewer young people entering the workforce um, in Mexico because of lower birth rates. But in Central America, we still have very large problems with corruption and gang violence and extreme poverty that is pushing people to leave. And then we don't have laws that allow workers that our economy might need during times of economic prosperity. There there aren't laws for people to come legally, or they're not, the laws are not sufficient. So I think those are what people have started to realize are they're kind of the long-term solutions to some of these issues is, is addressing the conditions in the countries that are sending migrants. And if a country feels like they need these migrants finding ways for them to come in in the legal fashion. A lot of Mexicans that now come 
to the United States to work in low-wage jobs are coming through you know, various temporary worker programs, which they hadn't been utilizing before to that extent because it's become so much more difficult to, to enter the United States illegally. Daniel, one final question. We're 13 months away from the next presidential election. Do you get a sense at this point that illegal immigration will play the same prominent role in 2020 as it did in 2016? I definitely think it's going to play a prominent role. I don't know if President Trump will be able to play it up as big as a prominent role as he did in 2016 because things have changed, you know, in the United States. Things have evolved. People are more uh, sophisticated in this issue. And the more that time goes by, the more in these smaller communities and that are far away from the border become accustomed to migrants in their communities, the less kind of fear there is of them and some of the rhetoric might not play as strongly as it did in 2016. But I do think President Trump still sees this issue as a potent issue. And I think we can definitely expect to see it play a prominent role. I think we just saw just yesterday, the president tweeted that he considers migration across the southern border as a bigger threat than what's happening in Syria. So I definitely think it's going to be a a prominent role, whether it will have the same kind of sticking power as it did in 2016. I'm not sure. Dan, this has been a fascinating conversation. I want to commend you on a great piece entitled One Deadly Week Reveals Where the Immigration Crisis Begins and Where It Ends. came out on October 1st, so relatively recently on USA Today or USA Today Network. Daniel, thanks very much for joining me, and I hope to have you back on the show at one point. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit the America's Program page at CSIS.org.